0: Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Now here's your host, Brian Brodor.
1: I'm joined today by producer and composer Michael Tioli. Michael, thank you for joining me from the West Coast. I hear it's hot out there today.
2: Yeah, it's 109 here today. Uh, thank you so much for having me.
1: Thrilled to have you speak today. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. We're alumni of the same school, uh, the Berklee College of Music in Boston. Um, We have a lot to talk about regarding music and the arts, and uh, you have a very wide and diverse career, including both film work and some theater work, and I'm thrilled to speak about all of this. Would you uh, give me a quick synopsis of what you do in the world? Tell me who you are and what you do. Go for it.
2: While I do a lot of different things, there's a lot of kind of odd musical jobs that will come up. Um, my main two things that I see are film and theater. Uh, so the film side of things, I'm a film composer. And on the theater side of things, there's two sets of, of things that I do for theater. One is I write musicals, uh, mostly rock musicals. But a newer thing that's happening in theater is that now plays that aren't musicals are starting to ask for original scores. So I'm starting to do that as well. That's kind of where my musical theater work and uh, film scoring kind of meet.
1: So when you're scoring for a straight play or a non-musical play, Is that being performed by live musicians or is that a a track that the sound designer or the sound mixer is flying in at the theater? those
2: are going to be tracks yeah so it's actually mixed in a very similar way to how you know the soundtrack for a film is mixed where um, myself and the sound designer and the director will all uh, ideally be in the room at the same time and it's a long kind of mix session where you really go through every piece of music every sound effect and really get the right mix on it so it's, it's very much like a film in that way
1: wow so the immediate question I would have for you is can you can you describe the difference between scoring for uh, for film for picture versus scoring for something that's happening live what's the biggest difference there
2: Oh it's hugely different now for film the Main thing that is gonna get me to where I need to be—it's all about the visual. Everything is about the visual. I never look at scripts. I rarely look at rough cuts. Sometimes I'll—I'll I'll look at a rough cut if I know I'm working on a project, just to kind of get the juices flowing, you know, to get some ideas. So I have a sense of okay, what's what's this palette gonna be like? Uh, but really, I don't do a bit of work until I have locked picture for a film because if a film—if I'm working on a scene and it changes even by just a few frames that has thrown off everything that I've done. I score everything to the frame, you know? So it's all about the visual in that sense where all of a sudden in theater when you're trying to score a play, you don't have any visual. So it's really challenging. It's kind of, you know, you really have to change the way you're thinking about it because in that way, all you have is the script. In an ideal situation, I would be able to go in and actually watch the play to really see what's going on. But a lot of these plays are world premieres, so you don't have that opportunity because the actors are in rehearsal working on it. It's not like it's a complete product that I can go in. I have to be working on the music before scenes are even rehearsed or done sometimes so the communication with the director is super important and that actually goes for film and theater like the most important thing is is the communication with the director because even in film where you have visuals I can score a scene 50 different ways and have them all be right have them all work I think for an audience but my job is to Match the vision of the director. So, you know, communication is super important in film as well, but in theater, it's even more necessary because there's nothing else to go on. You know, just words in a page sometimes don't mean the same thing to me as that visual. Like, I, I, even in uh, when working in theater, when scoring a play, I have a visual in my head, but the timing, you know, I have no idea if if what I'm v- envisioning is going to be accurate or how long it's going to go. So you really need the director to tell you, like, how much music they're going to need for a scene, what the vibe is going to be for that scene. And it's a little bit more of a – there's a little more chance there. It's more of a shot in the dark, and in, in some ways I have – more control as a composer to control the vibe of that scene because in um, you know in film they're going to watch the demo and right then they're going to know if it's approved if it's if it needs you know tweaks or notes but in theater it's really not implemented until the end and that's when we discover if this is working if it's not if, if there has to be a rewrite um, so it's it's interesting but there are those differences.
1: Let me focus that for a second. So tell me if you agree, it seems like there's more risk involved with scoring for the straight play for the stage work. It's coming into the process much later for approval. It seems like there's more risk there. Has that happened to you that where you've brought something and then it's got to the stage, it's felt like, whoa, that's not quite right
2: Well, one thing I should say is it's not like that's the first time the director's hearing it. I'm constantly sending them demos, and a lot of times it's like, yeah, this is great, this is great, oh, this needs to be changed a little bit. So, like, we are doing those kind of revisions, but even they're kind of envisioning it in their head because they're not literally... Uh, watching it with the action. You know what I mean? They're kind of, they have it in their head and they have a much better idea of what it's going to look like than I do. Cause I'm not in rehearsal every day and, and, you know, it's, it's their vision to begin with, but it's still difficult. I think to actually, you know, so, sometimes they can imagine it and it, it seems perfect, but then when you actually see it together, uh, it doesn't work quite as much. And thankfully I, I haven't really run into that except for one time uh, on the last project that I scored. There, there's a, uh, a show called the Sirens of Titan and it was adapted by, you know, Stuart Gordon, who, you know, was a, a great director horror director. He did, um, you know, reanimator and it was adapted from the Kurt Vonnegut junior novel, you know, Sirens of Titan. It was directed by Ben Rock at sacred fools theater this past spring and almost everything I was sending was just getting approved and it was all, everything worked really well. And there was this one cue, and I kind of, you know, I told them up front, like, you know, this may not be what you're going for. Like basically the beginning started off really chill and um, I was using a Rhodes and it was very, very chill and intimate. And then what I did, because I didn't really know, much about where the scene was going vibe wise I just kind of let the music go where it wanted and I stopped treating that piece as scoring and I just said you know what let me just let this piece go where it wants to as a piece of music and then I'll give it to him and you know and see what he thinks and he heard it and he loved it uh, but then when we got it there where it ultimately wanted to go as far as a piece of music it got very heavy it almost became almost like metal for a little bit and you know but it, it actually you know it worked for what was being said but there's a little piece of me where I was just like mm, this is going to be this is just going to be too much because we're not going to have the ability to mix it I think live the way I'd like to make this work so he's probably going to be like No, it's great, but it's probably not going to work. But he loved it. So we kind of kept it in there, and there was that little part of me that was like, hmm, I bet we're going to get into tech, and he's going to be like... Uh, we got to do something else here. So, and that's actually, that's what, that's what ended up happening where we kept most of the queue, but just where it went, like really rock, you know, I kind of did a revision that kept it more in the world of the beginning of the queue and, and whatnot. So, you know, that, that happens from time to time, you know, and, and I just, there was, it was a queue that I really loved and uh, it felt very organic to me. So I really wanted for it to work you know so i really wanted to see it because that's the thing i wanted i wanted to really see if it works or not and once we did it was like okay this this one doesn't work but um you know it was pretty easy to just go and make a revision uh especially once you see it but luckily everything else worked so i I had that built-in time you know for revisions and i only needed to do it on this one cue so it actually worked out really well
1: How did that decision come to pass? Was it sort of mutual or had you warned him already and then the cue goes up and how did that come down?
2: It was pretty mutual. He uh, saw it before I did with the live actors and it just he just said, you know, the cue kind of, it feels to overpower. Like this moment just feels like awesome and because of the music and it's not really supposed to feel that way. It's like a dark scene. And for me, a lot of times dark can be, heavy and you know you can have like dark almost like metal but it really was sounding too like kind of kick-ass and it wasn't supposed to feel that way you know it just kind of it overpowered I think the actor and I think it could have worked if it actually was film and it was mixed in a way that it was like way under the actors but there's not really a live mix in that sense like they could take it down but there really wasn't the time to do the like intricate tweaking and mixing to to have that work in a live context but and you know and it was one of those things where you know he said like oh I'm sorry you know (laughs) but but this one we're gonna have to change and I had zero problem with it because it you know that made sense to me you know there were times when you and a director you know especially with film kind of may have different visions about something where it's kind of tough to just to for you to both see it the same way um not often but sometimes that happens and this wasn't one of those moments Mm -hmm. this was like oh i get it yeah
1: it's interesting something occurs to me about the wild card of if you're scoring for a film you've got picture particularly as you mentioned working from locked picture and that's what the picture is but scoring for stage you have humans, you have actors, you know, that's a variable. I wonder even if for the actors, if they absorb and react to the music and it actually it becomes more collaborative in, in the event, I guess.
2: Yeah, no, they absolutely do. In this in this one specific show, you know, there's an actor. um Eric Curtis Johnson had this scene where he's giving this like big speech and kind of a raw, you know, speech. And uh, there was this big kind of orchestral epic march behind him that really progressed and just got bigger and bigger. And, and he told me that he was very inspired to how he Delivered the speech by the music. It kind of it kind of changed his monologue completely, mm. and you know he timed certain things to the music, you know, which certainly they couldn't do before they had the music, obviously, but because um, the the music isn't implemented till pretty much you know Tech Week, so they really only have like a week to even hear what that music is. Wow. So um, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of fun to you know have that effect on people with the actors it kind of makes you feel more of a part of the team because even though you're not actually there working together it's not like you're playing in a band together but in a way you kind of are there is kind of that bond i think you know i scored a show called absolutely filthy where uh, it was all kind of electronic music kind of dubstep influenced and it was a similar way that the music became such a part of that show that, I don't know, I just felt closer with a lot of the actors because it just, you know, we were all, it was just so collaborative, you know, in that in that sense.
1: We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor.
0: Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com.
1: I want to go backwards a little bit. I'm going to start from the top, top of the head of the chart. Tell me about how you got your start in music. When did you know this is what you do in the world? And what, what were your early influences? Tell me about coming up.
2: Well, um, and music's always been a big part of my life. My dad was a, a jazz drummer when he was younger, and my grandfather was a uh, concert violinist and started uh, an orchestra that's still around, in the, a local orchestra in the Merrimack Valley called the Merrimack Valley Philharmonic in Massachusetts. And, um, you know, so I always, you know, was going to concerts when I was young. Uh, but the first time that I knew for sure that, like, music was going to be what I was doing for the rest of my life was in seventh grade. That's kind of when I made the commitment and it's because I became what I call unhealthily obsessed with the Beatles. People say like, no, you know, there, there's no such thing as that. And there is such thing as that. Uh, I, I was way... I can relate. I coulda, so I, tell I, I, me I
1: what that is. I do <laughs>
2: Well, I don't I don't I don't remember anymore, but at the time like I could have told you shoe sizes, I could have told you, you know, wow. everything I knew I knew everything there was to know about the Beatles and part of what I attribute to where I am today is actually Tetris because what I would do in 7th grade is my buddy lent me his, uh, you know, a Beatles CD and I would go and I would, after I did my homework, you know, I'd play Tetris and I got really good at it. And what I would do is just like put on headphones and, uh, listen to an album until I died. And it took me a long time to die. So just every, every day I would just like listen to these Beatle albums over and over again. And then I would return it to him and then he'd give me another Beatle album. And just so all of a sudden I started to get to know all these songs. And it just occurs to you that like, there is not a bad song every single song that the Beatles have are all unbelievable. And it's just, there's no other... Band really like that where there's just no clunker, you know. I it, You know, Revolution Nine maybe. You know that that's a different <laughs> thing. But 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 everything else is just so good. And even the songs that back then that like I would skip over, not skip. I mean, I wouldn't actually skip over. But the ones that didn't speak to me as much then, years later, I kind of like rediscovered it. So the Beatles in seventh grade. That's when I I just knew that I was going to be doing music for the rest of my life, either as a composer or performer. You know. I wasn't sure exactly how Uh, I always listened to film scores when I was younger it seems kind of weird but like when my friends were listening to Guns N' Roses and Red Hot Chili Peppers both bands that I got really into years later in college uh, you know after they were you know weren't weren't doing the same things anymore you know I was listening to like John Williams and Danny Elfman scores and you know Mark Shaman and you know all these uh I, I don't know why I don't know why it is but those are the, I listened to like the Batman Returns soundtrack and the Adams Family soundtrack and Jurassic Park and you know Raiders all, all this stuff for whatever reason I was just really into those things like even before I was into the Beatles and uh the Beatles were really kind of one of the gateway drugs that got me into everything else um you know, now I listen to everything.
1: Well, we have to talk some Beatles then because I feel the same way. As I sit here at our studio right in front of me on our coffee table, I've got the Abbey Road picture book. You know, I've got the Beatles recording sessions book. You know, I mean, I'm equally obsessed. I have to admit I didn't know the shoe sizes ever, though. (laughs)
2: it's <laughs> um, probably a good thing every beetle conversation
1: yeah. as a token has to start with the question like favorite beetle and why
2: uh, you know that's so hard like growing up it was definitely John you know I just felt so in tune with John like what he stood for uh, just his work I, I was just really I don't know why just emotionally invested in John but as time goes on Really, it's more it's more equally spread out. You know, maybe it's because I've seen Paul quite a few times now live. It's tough to pick one over the other. I remember the first time I saw Paul McCartney, I had like a really emotional experience. I, I don't get starstruck. You know, it's not one of those things that is that happens to me, but I like lost it a little bit. I really like teared up hardcore when he started playing. I knew I was there to see Paul McCartney. I was prepared for it, but once he started singing, I think he opened with all my loving. And it just suddenly occurred to me that like, the reason I'm here, everything in my life is because of the voice that I'm hearing now, singing the song that I'm hearing now. I think it was always more John, but over the years, I think John and Paul are kind of there, but then you can't forget George. And then, you know, I don't know. It's, it's really, it's really tough. I I think I'd have to say John, but I don't know. It's tough.
1: I mean, I acknowledge it's an unfair question. You you know, growing up, (laughs) I, I was always a Paul guy and I still count yesterday as a, you know, a seminal song to me, you know, in the 20th century even. But, you know, Penny Lane always spoke to me when I was a kid. But as I got older, I deep dove into John. And to me, it was also about George Martin as well, you know. Oh, completely, completely. give me your thoughts on George Martin.
2: Oh, my God. I mean, there's people like to have the silly conversation about oh who was the fifth Beatle right is it it's Yoko it's Murray the K it's you know it's it's Brian Epstein you know and it's it's George Martin George Martin did you know so much for them and their sound he is just. Brilliant, you know, he did everything for them. You know, one thing you should check out if you haven't—it's called *In My Life*. It's George Martin's retirement album, yeah. and it's a bunch of Beatles songs that are covers by different famous people. And you know, some of them are pretty cheesy, and and you know, there's some weird. Stuff like Goldie Hawn singing, I even forget what she sings right now, maybe Hard Day's Night or something like that. Uh, but there's some amazing stuff on there, like Jim Carrey does I Am the Walrus. Yeah. And it's amazing. But one of my favorite tracks off that album is actually his Yellow Submarine score. Because, you know, George Martin did all that score. And it's a medley of the different tracks from the score. But the thing that just I love about it is he added a drum set. And so he rocked up the score, and it was exactly what it needed and for me that's that's my whole thing is fusion you know i like to fuse different styles like right now you know i, I call my you know, I guess my company, you'd say Michael Tioli Music, but for when I first started for many years, it was orchestral mayhem productions is what I called it. And that's still my publishing company. Cause I just love that idea of, you know, the orchestra mixed with the rock instruments, a lot of what Trans-Siberian Orchestra and Sabotage did, you know, that kind of thing. So, but really way before George Martin was doing a lot of that, like George Martin did all pretty much all their arrangements, you know, for the horns and the strings. And, you know, it was a lot of his decisions or not, not even decision, but suggestion about how about this instrument here, you know, how about, you know, for the, for the Beatles. And that's just, you can't separate that from, from them and their work.
1: I completely agree. I always tell people they're the four Beatles, but I was always interested in the guy behind the glass and even going back to the song yesterday with the double string quartet. And yeah, it's just mind blowing to me as a, a student of music and a fan. It's funny you mentioned fusion of styles and instruments. I, I picked up on that in reviewing some of your work, and I, I want to come back to that. Before I do that, tell me a little bit about your path to Berkeley and your experience at Berkeley College of Music.
2: Oh, I had such a great time at Berkeley. I absolutely loved it. Um, it was just so amazing to be in a place where everybody is a musician and and that music is the focus. When you're at Berkeley, you're coming from a place where you were kind of the music kid, you know in high school or wherever. you know you were in the music scene wherever you were, but this now, everybody is in that scene here. That's what this is. It's a complete focus. On music and that's just like so wonderful and I just got into so many things I would borrow albums from like everyone around me in the dorm and listen to new things every day and would spend just a lot of time on like one album at a time and soaking it in and it just really blew up my musical intake but also you know obviously the classes and the teachers it's just it's a lesson in professionalism that's just as important as the actual music technique is, you know, is that professionalism. You know, I, I was a contemporary writing and production major, which they used to joke around and call it the writing for money major. Um, <laughs> you know, because I was really interested in film scoring and they have a film scoring major as well. But just looking at them all, it's like, well, contemporary writing sets you up to be a film composer, but also, you know, does all these other things from like jingo writing to basically just any kind of writing professionally. And um I remember one of my teachers, Michael Farkason, who was a great guy to have there. at his class, it, w- it wasn't about necessarily all the technique you were learning. That was important too, but I just felt like his professionalism and about just what is expected of you in being a professional and you know, showing up Not just on time, but like completely prepared, more than prepared, you know, really envisioning anything that could happen and really making sure you're prepared for that. I don't know, just one really funny thing. So I was there from 2000 to 2004, and that's when CD was the thing. Right. So, all our projects you'd hand in on CD. Tapes were still around. Cassettes were still around. It wasn't like it is now where, like, cassettes, you can't find a cassette no matter where you look. But someone handed their project to him on a cassette. Uh, And this was a big project that we had worked on, you know, for a long time. It was a big day. And he just took it from the front of the room and just did like an arcing three-point shot into the garbage basket and he was like what are you doing giving me a cassette you know this is you don't you don't give me a cassette give me a cd this and it was it was just one of those moments that you're just like all right you know And this, that wasn't me, by the way. That was, that was someone else in the class. I just, I want to make that clear. And just being in Boston too. Boston, uh, I'm from, you know, outside of Boston, uh, like 45 minutes outside of the city. And But it was great being in the city for those years. And it was just wonderful. I, there's nothing bad that I can really remember about my time at Berkeley. And I highly recommend any anyone who's a serious contemporary musician, definitely look into it. It might be for you.
1: I neglected to ask you, what your primary instrument is. With film composers, many times we assume it's keyboards, but tell me about the instrument or instruments that you play.
2: Right. No, that's interesting. Do you want to guess?
1: (laughs) Well, um, I would guess if I'm putting money on it, I would say obviously you play some keyboards, but you might be a guitarist as well.
2: Well, it's funny. When I was at Berkeley, because when you're at Berkeley, you always have a primary instrument, which is what you're actually taking your private lessons in. And one thing just to add about when we were talking about Berkeley, one of the things I loved about it was this concept... Kind of like the army where you could be a doctor, you could be a, you know, in the army band, but you're always a soldier first, or at least that's how it was told to me. At Berkeley. it's kind of the same way. You could be a composer, you could be an engineer, a music therapist, but you're always a musician first, and I really loved that uh, idea, you know, how we were all in the same boat, and even if you got away from it, there's still that inner musician in you, even if you're doing other things, and for me, I was actually a, a voice principal. So I'm a rock singer and, you know, uh, I, I was doing cover bands and all kinds of, you know, work, uh, you know, when I was in when I was in Boston and uh, grew up playing a lot of different things. But voice was actually my focus. So it's kind of funny because that's that that is a little, I think, unique for some composers. But you're right. It's I never considered myself and still don't a pianist or keyboard player, even though Every film score I do, I'm working completely on keyboard, but it's more of a controller, you know, and you're inputting things and playing things in. Uh, but I'm not a performing pianist. And in theater, you know, especially as a music director, that's very rare. You know, I I come at it more from a guitar player standpoint. So I think you're not far, you know, when you guess guitar, you know, I have an arsenal of guitars here that I use a lot on all my projects and, and bass. So, I, you know, I play play guitar and play bass and play actually I play tuba as well a little bit but I was a voice principal at Berkeley.
1: Well tell me how being a vocalist influences your scoring.
2: Well it's funny this isn't my observation but I was once told by a composer who I was kind of picking their brain years earlier and they said I find that vocalists write really well for low brass and it's so funny because low brass is my favorite thing to write for Mm. and maybe it's because i'm a tuba player but i love writing you know three trombones and tuba you know having that four-part harmony that's always been like i kind of pride myself in that I, i love writing there i love getting really lush low brass sounds and it was so funny when he heard i was a vocalist he was like you must write really well for low brass and i was kind of like oh Weird. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's my favorite thing to write for. So, yeah, you, know, you know, so it was really something maybe it's just my voicings too. that's I think that's a thing because I, I spent years, you know, in high school, I did all state choir and, you know, doing these big choirs. So I have a really good understanding it, you know, the soprano alto tenor bass and, and how to use them and space them out. And I kind of, I guess, think about that you know, when writing for almost anything. And, you know, when I do musical theater work and when I'm arranging even for other composers, because, you know, sometimes I'll arrange work for other composers and do all their harmonies, you know, for musical theater. And um, that's one of the things that I think I've become known for is kind of like big lush harmonies and whatnot. So uh, I think that's probably, can probably attribute that to being a singer as well.
1: Do you find that you integrate vocals themselves in your scores
2: when appropriate I don't think in my head like vocals first it's not like I'm a vocalist so like that's what comes first so it's it's not really that situation it's I think I use it probably as much as anyone would it's just where vocals are needed you Mm, know Uh, but it's tough for me to say because I only know my instincts too. So maybe I tend to, to go to choir a little bit more, but I definitely in musical theater, I definitely go to four part harmony and more, uh, when others would probably, you know, stick to, you know, less than that. Um, you know, I definitely, I definitely want to have it be as big and as lush, uh, as possible.
1: Thanks, Michael. Please join us for part two of my conversation with producer, composer, Michael Tioli. Hope you can join us.
0: Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to associate producer Morgan Taylor, Audio engineer, J.P. Kong. Senior producer, Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thank you for listening.